Welcome to the Book Club Interview with your host, Scott Hollister, a show that empowers you to discover your best self through a deep understanding and review of books dedicated to self-improvement and business. All right, welcome to the Book Club Interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Blaine Strickland, who is a lifetime veteran of the commercial real estate industry. After earning his undergraduate and graduate degrees in real estate from the University of Florida, Blaine launched a career that has spanned 40 years. He has played many roles along the way, including broker, manager, owner, investor, professor, syndicator, and developer. He became a CCM designee in 1987 and a CCM senior instructor in 2008. So welcome back to the show today, Blaine. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. It's great to be reunited with you. Uh, yeah, I'm, real, I'm really impressed with that beard, though. I got to tell you, one of these days, I'm going to work <laughs> on that myself. There you go. Yeah, well, you're living in Florida. You have the sunny, <laughs> sunny weather. We're up here in Connecticut. We're freezing a little bit right now. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe my face is a little more tan. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's awesome. I, I, I love having you back on the show. We, we instantly hit it off. And, you know, as I was taking my, my courses, I've, I've always looked up to the professors because they have such a great knowledge and background and they're also great teachers at the same time. So I think, you know, that's my favorite type of teacher, one who has real world experience that's still going on and can also explain it in an easy to understand format. So I appreciate your knowledge and we've got you back for a second book. So why don't we dive into that a little bit? So, you know, Thrive was the last book that we had you on the show for, and that was more of a how-to book where uh, Adapt, your new book coming out, you know, is, is more of like a what-if message in preparing for the future. So it explores an entirely new set of questions of, you know, what lies ahead, changes that are coming, and how we can adapt to the reshaping of the industry. So how, was, how did that book come about? And, you know, what, are, what is that 10,000 foot view of them? Well, <clears throat> sorry, um, I'm fighting a little bit of a cold here, so you might have to deal with that. Um, you remember, Scott, that uh, the purpose of Thrive uh, was the question that I asked at the, in, in the introduction of Thrive was, you know, would you let me be your sales manager? Um, having uh, started my own firms, been part of CBRE as both a salesman and a manager of salespeople, I've had a long uh, exposure to the best sales management techniques for commercial real estate salespeople. And um, in all those roles that you've mentioned, I now spend most of my time as a coach and a consultant to the brokerage industry. And so it wasn't really too hard to see that there were pains, if you will, that constantly resurfaced in their world. So the idea of Thrive, which has a subtitle of 10 prescriptions for exceptional performance as a commercial real estate agent, was my attempt to say, look, if you are progressing in your career, you're going to interact with some of these pains. Here are the remedies. Here are the prescriptions that I propose. And um, that book has been very well received. A lot of people have gained benefit from that book. But I have to tell a quick story, which is that I presented the manuscript to a friend early on and said, look, this is what I'm thinking about. Um, could you read through this manuscript and tell me what you think? And his reaction to that was, wow, this is great. Of course, since I know you well, I've heard you talk about some of these things before. Um, it's just kind of interesting that you could sell 40-year-old guidance. And I kind of laughed when he said that, meaning my 40 years. And so... We kind of laughed over that and I said, yeah, that's true, but this is classic sales management. In other words, these principles are still valid. But when he said that, it caused me to start thinking about the future. And at that moment, even before Thrive was published, I began to work on ADAPT. 
And for many years now, um, people in the industry have been saying, change is coming, change is coming. Some people think that because the industry has been dominated by what are now an average age of 60 years old, we've been sort of slow to adapt to technology. I can remember though, as a young man at CBRE, um, back in the very early 80s, CBRE was sort of indifferent to the fax machine when it first came out. I mean, for two years, we didn't have a fax machine when everybody else did. So there's always been a little bit of resistance to change in our industry. A lot of people make money given the status quo. But as I began to think about what's going to change, the idea of disruption uh, blossomed in my mind. And so the full name of the new book is Adapt. Disruption is coming to commercial real estate brokerage. Are you ready? And so when I started to think about um, how that disruption would occur and what might cause it to occur, a lot of interesting factors popped up. And it wasn't too long until I had 25 index cards in front of me, each with a different potential factor. And what I discovered as I began to narrow that down so that I could write an acute message, you know, a focused message, was that really um, I felt that nine factors uh, stood out partly because of their potential impact and partly because they are, I think, are um, unique to our industry. In other words, I explain in the introduction to ADAPT that I don't really focus that much on technology in the new book because technology is going to affect everything that we do. And, and so all of us are going to be influenced by technology. So I didn't just want to say, oh yeah, technology is going to really disrupt the, tech, uh, the commercial real estate brokerage industry. It's going to disrupt all of us. So I actually kind of pushed that to the side and tried to focus, not that I don't believe it will cause impact. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that that's not particularly unique to our industry. So in the end, I was able to come up with what I feel are factors that are specifically um, potent in our arena. Mm-hmm. And you've organized those into three groups, correct? Right. There's nine forces um, that I've uh, organized into three groups. And the first group of three chapters is called client evolution. And the basic idea is um, our clients are becoming uh, more knowledgeable. They have information quicker. And so in the past, part of our value flowed from the fact that we had information that they didn't. And now they might be outpacing us. And so how does that change the equation? It may mean that we go away. It probably doesn't. It may mean just that the scope of services that we offer changes and the way we price those services might change. Mm-hmm. And then the second grouping, which is four chapters, I call Playground of the Giants. And this is a look at four different major players in the arena that are morphing right before our eyes. And so disruption can be caused by really big players. I mean, we've seen that in the, in our own economy, you know, if there's a stock market crash or uh, if there's a bank bailout or if one of the automakers fails, that's disruption. Um, And so I really tried to look at the biggest players and just say, you know, it seems like if we're going to talk about disruption, we should go and check on those big boys and just maybe take a little outside look of how they're doing. And then the third grouping is what I call demographic evolution. And that is a, uh, I hope, clear-eyed look at the, the state of our uh, arena. There are supposedly about 100,000 commercial real estate brokers in the United States. And um, the average age of those brokers has been surveyed by different groups and is said to be somewhere around 60 years old. So if the average age of the country is 34 years old and the average age of our industry uh, producers is 60 years old, then it seems like we're going to have 
demographic evolution that's going to be different than the country. If the country edges older slowly, great. But what happens in an industry where if the average is 60 today, where does that, where will that leave us 10 years from now? Will all those 70 year olds still be in the business? And then what I discovered is that there's a fairly significant gap between the old and the young, that they see things so completely differently that that causes um, awareness of a possibility of disruption. We, all of our disruption, to be blunt, might come from inside the arena, might come from just the guys sitting around in the cubes. Hmm. I love it. Yeah, those are, those are main topics that you, you've heard, you know, at the larger real estate events and, and it, it's great because to be on the forefront of those and know about those questions and those concerns. And, and it, I think if anything, it's the ability to try to see around the corner so you can better prepare yourself to stay in that field. So when you first started, you know, as an agent and broker and to where you are today, if you had to give some type of best guess, right? Is that, and is it that age gap? Is it a communication thing? Is it using technology better? What what tips would you give you know the younger broker in the commercial arena today? Well, um, I heard uh, Bob Knackle, who is a top investment sale broker in New York City, who's also um, a testimonial for this book, say not too long ago, these, this is the golden age of commercial real estate brokerage, and we're making more money than we ever have before. But let's take a moment and examine that. It's not that we're selling more buildings than we ever sold. It's not that we're earning a higher commission rate than what we ever had. In other words, we sold it for 5% then and we sell it for 5% now. The mm -hmm. difference is, is that the buildings are worth 10 and 20 and 30 times more than what they were 40 years ago. So the same number of buildings at the same commission rate, but think that the other variable there has gone up tremendously. So as a result, um, there's an opportunity to make a great deal of money. Um, as I mentioned in Thrive, what happens is that a lot of people um, are able to make a pretty good uh, amount of money without that much of a business plan. And so they chase hard. And there's if you just strike gold once, it's a pretty big strike. In other words, it's almost like if you were buying lottery cards for a living, <laughs> but the lottery cards, instead of winning a dollar, suddenly you won $10,000, then that's kind of the nature of this thing. So... Um, when I think about how young people are looking at the industry today, what they see, as I explain in, um, in chapter nine, the final chapter of the book, is that many of them are not looking to um, go into classic real estate brokerage. They now are looking at uh, technological aspects. In fact, the question that I ask in chapter nine is, um, would, in it, would a young guy today, a young person today, go into the business with a broker as a broker with that long startup period and not that much training and not that much influenced by a well-crafted business plan? Or as I ask sort of tongue in cheek, would they just create the app? And if you look at the amount of money that's being spent on technology for commercial real estate uh, services, which they sometimes refer to as optech and prop tech, the operating systems of the company and companies, how do we get smarter about what we're doing? And then prop tech, how do we make the buildings perform at a higher level? You could make a case that young people today would, would uh, glom and you know, they would go toward that light. And if they happen to be able to create something that's interesting and sell it, then they're gonna make just as much or more than they would as a commercial real estate broker. 
So um, when you ask me what would be my advice today, I, I'm a little afraid that I can't answer that very well because I think the scenario has changed so differently. In other words, mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be like, uh, well, son, uh, you, you, you should do like me and be a railroad operator. It's like, dad, nobody takes the train anymore. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like that. So um, it's a tough question. Um, I do think that there is uh, a lot of uh, capital being spent in the services arena where people are trying to figure it out and do better. So it's not that there's no opportunity. It's just that I think those opportunities are going to be significantly different than what they have been in the past. Mm. And do you see, I know you mentioned pricing model a little bit with the real estate brokers. Do you see more of like a a la carte service? You know, if, if technology and the properties are in, you know, the end buyer's hands, and that middleman kind of takes a, takes a step back, but you know that's like trying to replace a, you know an expert in any other field. They still have tremendous value, right? They may not hold the keys to the information anymore, but you know what what would that look like in the future? Well, I make I really address that in uh, chapter two and somewhat in chapter three. In chapter two, I talk about the idea that uh, the uh, automated valuation process is coming to commercial real estate. Now we already see that in the residential world. It's no secret that you can get your phone out, open the Zillow app right up and down the street and get a pretty darn good sense of what every house is worth, what, what the rental values are. Uh, You can see why they've rated it like they have. In fact, Zillow believes so strongly in that, that they've been using their own estimates to now buy real estate. So, so there's no question that that model works when you're in a subdivision where most of the homes are the same, same materials, same year, same builder, same floor plan, same size lot, same mm-hmm. construction materials. So that makes sense that that would be easily done, potentially easily done, um, much more variation on the commercial side. But there's inroads on the commercial side. And so then the question becomes, if the um, buyer and the seller were both uh, able to access information about the property and it was readily available, meaning, yeah, it appears on the face of my phone, then you have to wonder where that leaves the agent who um, for the last 25 years often approaches the prospective seller by saying, why don't you let me create an estimate of value? And when you are then able to understand what the value of the property is, let's talk about whether now is the time to harvest that value, to sell the property. And then it's a logical extension to say, great, well, then we agree that the property is worth three and a half million dollars. And this is a very positive value. If we could get that, why don't you let me take the property to market for you? it's very possible now that the seller would call the broker and say, yeah, I've already um, explored what the value is. I'm pretty confident and um, I'm having a beauty pageant for several different brokers. And if you'd like to participate in that, I'll pay you X to, you know, to sell the property with the information that I've already developed. Um, The buyers can see that information as well. And so then you have more direct to seller. So now the buyers are calling the sellers direct and go, look, I'm not trying to be cute here, but we're both looking at the same app. Would you be willing to sell it for that number? And and so maybe do we even need an agent anymore? Well, all Mm -hmm. that puts pressure, that access to valuation puts pressure on the brokerage services as they have existed in the past. So does that mean some brokers might begin to offer services on an a la carte basis? Let us look over your shoulder and give you a three-page summary letter showing that we believe that the number is correct. Or uh, yes, we believe the number is correct. Here's the 15 things you have to do to manage the sale uh, to closing. 
Now, in chapter three, I actually look at this a la carte idea from a completely different perspective, which I call, which is called the gig economy. So what happens when the gig economy comes to commercial real estate services? And I simply point out that if you go to Upwork and log in these project requests, such as uh, I need someone to abstract my lease, well, you can now buy that service from 15 different vendors that might respond to that proposal proposing a wide range of fees and you would be able to scan through um, 15 different people, 15 different uh, levels of experience. Um, you can ask specific questions and you can choose your rate. And it's pretty hard to say that someone in Kansas or Hawaii or New York or Orlando, Florida couldn't do that for you. In other words, they could read the lease and they could come up with a summary of the lease, abstract the lease, and they could, if they were willing to do that for $175, um, the seller might take advantage of that uh, as opposed to saying, well, that was always a service that was part of that 3% commission or whatever the commission rate was. So I expected you to do that and you offered to do that, but it was all wrapped into this big commission at the end. So I think there's going to be intense pressure on this idea of a la carte services. Mm. It's, it's, it's amazing. I, I love the insight and and me being so you know, brand new on my, you know, commercial real estate experience. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, educate myself and learn, you know, as much as I can. So, um, I love in the beginning of the book and I, I didn't notice about this and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but so your father was a CCM and, and now your son is as well. So three generations. Yeah. That was another sort of anchoring factor for this book, which is that yeah. my father was a, um, uh, air force fighter pilot flew combat missions in Vietnam. And when the Vietnam was over, um, Vietnam War was over, he uh, left the Air Force at age 44 in, mm -hmm. in 1977. And by 1984, he was a CCIM designee seven years later. Well, I had already committed myself to the real estate business. And so by 1987, three years after he got his designation, I became designated. So we were one of the first uh, father and son combos. And then 30 years goes by. And now my son, who is 29, earned his CCIM designation two years ago. And I, and you know, along the way, I became an instructor and I was able to see him progress and see the value of that designation. But it really does kind of say, look, from 1984 to 2018, we own that span as a family of designees. I mean, think what we've been talking about at the coffee table for the last, you know, <laughs> that, all that many yep. years. And it does kind of um, give a personal anchor to this, a personal timeline to this idea of disruption uh, or to say mm. it differently, not that much changed until recently. No kidding. Yeah. And I mean, my dad and myself basically have done the same thing for many, many years. And, you know, now here I am, I'm the average age. My, my dad just turned 87. I'm 62. So here I am, the average guy, and it's just been a very interesting journey to sort of look at and then have that personal um, continuum that anchors the idea. Hmm. So is in, and I love that passing of the torch. So, you know, if, if not much has changed, you know, what was your father's advice um, as you got into it? And, and what's some of your advice to your son as he's, you know, getting into that same path as well? Well, um, my father was, did not major in business. He went to West Point. He majored in engineering. He was a fighter pilot. He's a, you know, he's a, um, a scientist and engineer by sort of training, if you will. And so um, we found ourselves stationed at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa. And, you know, when you kind of look around and say you're 44 years old and you're thinking, 
okay, do I stay in the military for X many more years and not drag us around the country? Or, hey, I might be in paradise here, so why don't I stay? And there was lots of opportunity. And, and he, um, not surprisingly, immediately began to educate himself in this new arena. Um, that affected me. And so the advice and effect that I took is I transferred to the University of Florida, which was one of the few schools that had degree programs. And I stayed long enough to get two degrees, an undergraduate and graduate mm -hmm. degree. So I effectively took his advice and implemented it by getting that education. Now, all these years later, my son graduated. We live in Orlando. He grew up here and um, went to the University of Central Florida, uh, which has a real estate program, but that's not what he studied. I did not push him into real estate. He migrated to it over time. And it's been kind of interesting because at age 29, having been in the industry about five years from now, he's really, you can see him beginning to hit his stride. Nice. When, if you said, what does that mean? I would say, well, he finally understands all of the legal technical process of how to do a deal, but he also mm -hmm. be, has merged that with market information. And ultimately that's the game here, which is you got to take market information and process information and find somebody who cares, meaning that's code for somebody who will commit to you and pay you. And so it's been really interesting to see him, um, coming through that process. And so and in some ways, that part of it hasn't changed. Where it's going from here, I think it get kind of interesting. That's great. No. And I love that. So, I mean, talk about a, a father figure and a coach. Hopefully he hired you as a coach. I don't, I don't want to bring that up, but <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> as you, as you know, or will learn, um, you have to be pretty delicate when you begin to, um, work with your children. You know, I'm mm -hmm. always reminded of what the statement that's been attributed to Mark Twain, which is when I left for college at age 17, my parents were idiots. When I got back home at age 21, I couldn't believe how much they had learned. And so uh, you have to kind of be gentle and delicate and let your children figure it out. And to his credit, he has. Mm. That's amazing. And, and staying on that same theme, I know, I know we jumped around from the book a little bit, but uh, I love this, this scenario that you have, you know, that, that, three generations and, you know, and, and that's basically what we're doing, right? With, with books is we're trying to educate, you know, other people and learn so, you know, we can be the best that we can be. So, you know, I, I look at that first paragraph and, you know, you have broker, manager, owner, investor, professor, syndicator, and developer. And, you know, that's another thing that I, I, I love to ask you. And I know we spoke about it briefly before, but with that well-rounded experience um, and that, it's such an impressive resume and you have a son that's getting into the industry and that's in it and hitting his strides. Is there any one of those that you'd be like, you know, Hey son, I, I'd, I'd like you to focus on these two things because I've done, you know, these seven or eight things. And, you know, I, I really didn't like being a developer. You know, I may have lost my shirt or I may have been successful. Um, you know, what, what couple of those things would you like to see, you know, your son kind of head down? Well, uh, I do make a point in the last chapter about the conditions that face young people today. And mm -hmm. many young people are choosing to go to a university program and get a degree in real estate undergraduate or, or graduate level. And if you poll those people and say, why are you doing that? Uh, the most common response is, I want to be a developer. Now, maybe they want to be a developer because they saw their parents uh, succeed in that realm and, and there is potentially big payoff, but maybe they're interested in, uh, in uh, 
you know, in the art effect of it, which is it would be great to create something from scratch and there stands your creation. And, and in fact, there's your sculpture. Um, some people are interested in it from a municipal planning, quality of life, community orientation. Uh, some people are interested in it from a low income or uh, disadvantaged housing type programs, but, but many of them say they wanna be developers. And what I always say to those people is that, um, it takes time and in effect to be a developer, you have to be a quarterback. And if you think about that analogy, the quarterback does not always carry the ball. He rarely blocks someone. Um, he rarely receives a pass, uh, but he has to know what every single assignment is on the field. He, he looks at the defense and he recognizes whether the tackle is going to block down or kick out. He recognizes how far away the running back is in comparison to the potential hole. And to be, a, to be an effective developer, you really have to have had a lot of those experiences. So what I often tell them and tell, tell young people is, look, why don't we set a goal of becoming a developer when you're 35 years old, 10 years from now, and the best thing you could do between now and then is assemble your all-star team, which means that you find ways to interact with all the different disciplines that touch a development deal and go to lunch with them, go see what they've done, meet with them at their projects, so that when the time comes, then you can call together the people that you need. Um, the alternative to that would be to arrive at some point and say, well, I'm a developer and I'm capable of finding the site and even funding it. But then you would quickly find yourself effectively signing personally on the backs of consultants that you don't know very well. And so once you get to that mode where you're going to sign personally, then, um, and, and it's real, then you say, boy, I'm really dependent on these people around me. Um, so just trying to tie this to the book a little bit, one of the things that I would tell you is, is that, not only do many of them want to be um, developers, but almost no one who gets a degree in real estate, undergraduate or graduate, chooses to be a real estate broker. So very, very few are opting into brokerage, which is kind of interesting because if you were, if you owned the arena and you were thinking, how are young people going to come into this thing? Well, we don't really offer a very attractive entry portal. Um, we don't have a a squared away training program and a financial path to get there. We sort of say, well, come on in, we'll give you some draw, we hope it works. And that hasn't been very attractive. Um, and, it, and it pushes against or cuts against the grain of some other things that they wanna do, which is why they choose it. So as a result, then we end up with young people that come into the industry, sometimes like maybe just giving it a try, we'll see how it goes, or I'll start doing residential deals and then I'll come over to commercial. And of course it doesn't take long to realize those are two completely different sports. And so, um, you know, it's a, challenging, it's a challenging environment for young people to come into the industry right now. Um, Nonetheless, at the end of the day, it is a big, moving, amorphous um, arena, and you can never go wrong with the uh, ability or the opportunity to meet other people in their disciplines and understand what they do. I, I believe that I was able to write this book because I had uh, understanding of so many different arenas. I also had time to go to meetings, read articles, hold um, focus groups and things like that, that the normal producer doesn't have. This would be a very difficult book for a normal producer because they're constantly trying to earn money from transactions, totally understandable. That's not the way my world works. So I was able to spend more time thinking deeply about these different ideas. Um, and so uh, I think that 
all those different roles. So if it turns out that you end up in 15 different roles after 50 years, you know, I'd say, Hey, don't sweat it. It worked for me. <laughs> Good. Oh, and that's what I love about your book so much is you have that experience to draw on that comes through. Um, and, and that's my favorite part. I mean, I still tell people all the time. I'm like, I hope, I hope we don't figure out the true value of books because you just put 40, <laughs> 40 years of experience and knowledge and, and, and something to, to help you turn the corner and look ahead for 20 bucks or something. You know, that's, that's a steal. <laughs> you know, that's lunch one day. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, as you know, we've talked about this before the book uh, retails for 24 95 and hardcover it's available for at Kindle for $10 and audiobook for six, I think. So you can choose your methodology, your media and your price. But I would say maybe more importantly is, is that I put myself under the discipline of holding this book to 30,000 words so it can be read in two and a half hours. I could have written a longer book and more research, but it wouldn't have been any more valuable. The whole point of the book was to bring you quickly to some, to some ideas for you to consider. So I don't try to, it's a book about the future. So I obviously can't tell you what's going to happen, but I can tell you to watch for these things and ask these questions. But if you're going to deal with commercial real estate producers, you got to get to the point quickly. These are busy, almost ADD like people who are aggressively in the marketplace and you got to get the, words across the table quickly. And I, I, I appreciate a concise book that doesn't have a lot of fluff behind it. You know, that's, and it, it's the perfect length of my eyes for that, for, for those reasons that you said. Um, and one thing you just mentioned pretty, pretty briefly is I, I love this. And I think I learned it in the market analysis course is it was either Burger King, McDonald's or Wendy's, right? So I think when um, McDonald's was established and one of the other companies was going to do their market research and they were going to spend all this money and they're like, why are we going to spend this money? Just, just put them across McDonald's. Um, so when you talk about those other biggest players in the arena, you know, the top four companies, what are you looking at to, you know, steal or borrow from that is working for, you know, the, the smaller type brokerage that the majority of people hold? Well, the big three in the commercial real estate arena are CBRE, JLL, and Cushman Wakefield in that order. All three of those are 100-year-old companies. All three of them have global outreach. All three of them earn a very significant portion of their gross revenue through what's the, the bundle called corporate services. So what they their pitch is to uh, go to a company that has locations across the world and say, why don't you let us handle that for you? We can, uh, we can create an account manager, a single point of contact, and that one person can then access all the resources of our global platform. And that's very effective, and it's exactly what certain types of companies want. Um, mm -hmm. As you remember from your CCIM instruction, that about 20% of all commercial real estate in the country is owned by Wall Street, the REITs, the public companies, et cetera. 80% is owned by Main Street. So there's plenty of opportunity for the local broker to become very, very good at what they do. In fact, in the uh, chapter that I write about the big three companies, um, I think about that from two different ways. I think about it on one hand, what would happen if one bought the other or somebody bought them or somebody bought them and dismantled them just to get their property management business and sold off something else. But the other part of that chapter is I think about it from this sort of craft brewery effect, which is the idea that I, I point out that Anheuser-Busch has now bought 
10 craft breweries, including, as an example, Wicked Weed in Asheville, North Carolina, who sells its beer out of a building called the Funk House. So you have to kind of ponder what it must have been like at the board of directors table when Anheuser-Busch goes, what? We're, we're, what? We're going to buy Wicked Weed and we're going to sell beer in the Funk House? But what they learned is that by buying it and not changing the brand, that they got a seat at the table in one of the best beer markets in the country. And so they figured out how to take their advantages, which in the case of beer, as an example, might be technology, might be distribution channels. In other words, if you and I created a brewery, we, all of our friends would love it. Now, whether we could get um, Publix, in my case, in the South, to carry it in their 1,300 stores or 1,700 stores, whatever it is, that's a whole different play. So the, the idea of local brokerages uh, becoming very good at what they're doing, and there are many in every market that are like boutique restaurants almost, um, you know, they definitely have the ability to, to um, be impactful, to provide services that no one else does. They have deep relationships. They have context on local markets, which hasn't been bubbled up into global uh, data. <clears throat> so I think there's a lot of opportunity for the local brokers. Um, I think there might actually be some opportunity for the big players to get into some of these markets through some of these companies if they could figure out a way not to globalize it. Um, hmm. So um, I also, in that same chapter, I point out that as an example, Marriott has something like 30 brands. And so the common link is no matter which brand you stay in, uh, you get Marriott points. But on the other hand, there's a lot of these little signature jewel box type of hotels in these very distinct little markets where you wouldn't want to put a giant JW. You know, you, you want that small piece. And is it only a small store and only collects a, lot, a small amount of revenue? Yes, but it does deepen your hooks into local markets. That's great. It's amazing insight. You know, with that insight, let the creative juices flow. Yeah. And... Um, you know, try to build the future the best as you can. So I love that. I, and I think that's, you know, my question I, I keep continually asking me myself of is, you know, what's, what's the best path or what's the best, best path forward, right? Cause I don't want to go down a path that is not, you know, going to bring me to financial freedom, you know, in a different way. Um, so I think the insight and, you know, the points that you do bring up help broaden you know, our knowledge on, on what's out there and, and how we can kind of navigate the best way. Yeah, I, um, I think in, if you compare it to Thrive, I was pretty sure-footed. In other words, this is where I've lived. I know these things work. I've coached people that have used these remedies. It's pretty clear-cut. You know, if you take these two aspirin and call me in the morning, you will feel better. In ADAPT, um, all I can do is say, you know, here's some ideas that you might want to be sensitive to and all I really can do is say, I'm just trying to start the discussion. I'm just trying to make sure that we're asking the right questions. One of the things that I did in ADAPT that I did not do in Thrive is that when you get to the appendix in ADAPT, there is a list of study group questions. And so what I learned from my readers uh, in Thrive is they would say things like, oh yeah, we love your book. And I go, oh, who's we? And they'd say, oh, well, our whole group is reading it. We're doing two chapters a week and we're talking about it for 15 minutes at our sales meeting. And I was like, that's fantastic. And so mm -hmm. with ADAPT, I went ahead and put those discussion guide questions in there so that if anybody wanted to do it that way, there's a, you know, there's a, it's all templated there. But it was interesting thinking about that list of questions because as an example, one of the questions I ask is, now that you've read the chapter, 
or the chapters and you understand how these giants are moving around, just out of curiosity, if you were the chairman of CBRE, what would be your next move? You know, which is obviously there's a human on this earth thinking about that. And, and it's just kind of interesting to think, wow, with all these different sort of moving parts and maybe this increasing speed of change and here comes disruption and, you know, should we buy the number two guy or should we go to Asheville and buy Wicked Weed? You know, there's a lot to think about out there, but it's kind of interesting to push yourself to think like, well, what would I do if I were in charge of, C of the biggest player in the arena? <clears throat> and I really appreciate those guiding questions. That, that, was, that was a very nice touch at the end of the book. Yeah. yeah. No, yep. Thank you. Yeah. Well, before we wrap things up, I just want to thank you for an amazing interview, some great insight and super excited about the book. We're going to um, talk about the release date, you know, where we can find out more information about um, you and the best place to reach you. Well, thank you. Um, uh, I've gotten smarter. This is the second book. And so I'm a little more educated to how it works. And so what I can tell everyone is that the book will be available on March 18th uh, via Amazon in three formats, audiobook, Kindle, and hardcover. Um, it's, it's available in hardcover and ebook on my website, uh, www.hbs-resources.com. So you can learn more about me, learn more about my activities, and there's a, there's a page dedicated to the book as well. Uh, you can buy both books there, as a matter of fact. So if you wanted to learn more about me or background or some of the things that I'm involved with, the, re the website would be the place to go. If you want to simply buy the book, you can buy it at Amazon or Audible for the audiobook. Um, I have uh, figured out that you can work with advanced readers. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about this time is that when the book launches, there'll be a whole group of people that have read it and posted reviews early on. And those reviews, which I've seen some of them, are been, have been very encouraging, very interesting. But I think that adds to the reader's ability to see what other people say, not just what I say. And as they look through these varied reviews, they can make a decision whether this is a message for them. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well, looking forward to it coming out as well. So thank yeah. you very much, Blaine. Appreciate yep. your time today. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. It's always fun to be with you. Uh, I love the, I love the progress you're making in your own career. So congratulations to you. Well, thanks. I, got, I have great mentors ahead of me. <laughs> That's the secret. Thanks so much for listening to this show of the book club interview with your host, Scott Hollister. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on the Book Club Interview.